Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on today's show, we'll play the audio from a virtual event we hosted this week to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the magazine. I was joined by some of our longtime writers, Heather McDonald, Steve Malanga, Nicole Gelinas, as well as a pre-recording of Fred Siegel, and we talked about the history of City Journal, the issues that they've covered over the years, and the future of New York and other American cities more generally. It was a great event. The conversation was about an hour, and the connection on the live stream wasn't perfect, so we tried to make some improvements for our listeners on this podcast. There'll be a quick transition, and then we'll open the event. We hope you enjoy. Today, we're joined by three veteran and well-known writers for the magazine. Heather McDonald, she's a City Journal contributing editor, and Thomas W. Smith, fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's the author of the prescient bestseller, The War on Cops, and the equally timely, The Diversity Delusion. Steve Malanga, City Journal's senior editor, and the George M. Yeager Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and the author of Shakedown, the continuing conspiracy against the American taxpayer, and Nicole Gelinas, City Journal contributing editor, Manhattan Institute senior fellow, and author of After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington. So to start, you know, I'd like to ask each of the panelists uh, to talk about how they began writing for City Journal when they first came to the magazine. And we'll start with you, Steve. You were executive editor of Crane's New York Business before you came to the Manhattan Institute in the eventful year of 2001. Can you tell uh, us a bit about how you uh, joined the magazine? Yeah, well, actually, what was happening was um, in, in the late 80s and early 90s when I was at Crane's, we were covering intensely uh, the political a dynamic in the business community. And we were hearing a lot from people in the business community about how difficult it was to do business in the city. We were writing a lot about this, about the problems with the crime in the city, but also we were hearing about new political groups that were forming that were essentially uh, in favor of big government and were making headway, particularly public sector unions and also uh, nonprofit groups that essentially work for the city. They were big advocates for big government. And, and I had a column and I was writing regularly about this. And very few people back then, this is, we're talking 30 years ago, were writing about these issues. And I guess that attracted the attention of the folks at City Journal. I actually, um, in the mid 90s, had lunch with uh, Myron Magnet, the uh, editor at the time of City Journal. Um, and also with James Toronto, who was the senior editor of City Journal at the time. He's now, of course, the uh, features editor on the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal, where he's been for many years. And uh, we talked about uh, uh, my doing some writing for them, but I had a full-time job being executive editor was. Uh, but we did kind of create an association. I started going to the events. I actually moderated some events on the business community. And over time, as I got more of a desire to spend more time writing and less time editing, I eventually decided that um, uh, it would be a good fit. I'd been invited to come, and I, in 2000, I thought, you know, now is the time to come because I really want to spend, there's a lot I want to write about, and I want to spend that time, and I thought the Manhattan Institute offered a really good platform because it gave me the opportunity not just to write for City Journal, but also to write for any publication in America that was interested in publishing, you know, my, my stuff. And so that's really how that, you know, that association started. And uh, let's hear from you, Heather. When you started writing for City Journal, 
I think it was the early 90s, so you go back uh, farther than uh, any of us with the magazine and with the Institute. Uh, you were covering various topics, including welfare reform, and it wasn't until really the late 90s that you started focusing on crime. How? What was your early experience like with the magazine? How did you first come to City Bureau? Well, it was an extraordinarily exciting time because this was the start of Giuliani, the good Giuliani. I don't know what's going on with him now, uh, but he was challenging the reigning orthodoxies of New York City with fervor, with deep instinctual understanding, uh, taking on the welfare industrial complex, the homelessness complex, uh, certainly the assumption that violence is the natural condition of, of American cities, including New York. And I was learning on the job because I'd never done journalism before. I had started writing a little bit on cultural matters and then uh, was asked to start contributing. So I was both learning how to be a reporter, but as importantly, I also did not come out of a conservative background. Um, I was not particularly political. And so I hadn't read some of the classics challenging uh, big government ideas. In fact, I was a default liberal. So I figured since I knew nothing, I, I my only possible value added as a writer was a willingness to go out and do on the ground reporting and, and talk to people. So I would go to welfare centers and homeless centers and, and talk to the clients. And it was a completely empirical introduction into some of the truths of traditional conservative thought. I would talk to these welfare mothers and they sounded like Ronald Reagan. They would say things like, well, you know, these welfare mothers, they're just having more babies just to get a bigger check. Or these welfare mothers are so lazy, they can't even change the uh, 40 watt bulb in their, in their apartment building. And these are welfare mothers themselves. And they would say things like, they should have done this welfare reform years ago. This was the period of national welfare reform in 96. It was also, uh, and Giuliani was, was uh, just fighting tooth and nail to introduce the principle of reciprocity uh, into the civic compact. Uh, so uh, that was, uh, you know, people would say, I went to a homeless shelter on Thanksgiving and somebody said, you should never get on government aid, it's a narcotic. That's great, thanks, Heather. Now, Nicole, you're the relative newcomer here. You started writing for City Journal in the uh, mid 2000s, bringing your focus on finance and uh, mass transit issues. Uh, how did you come to City Journal and what was your background you know, pr prior to coming to the magazine? Yeah, thank you, Brian. It's, it's hard to believe, but I've been with the magazine now for nearly 16 years since the summer of 2005. And I came to the magazine because I got an email from Steve Malanga saying, that uh, he and Myron had been reading my articles in the New York Post for a while and they wanted to have lunch and talk about whether I wanted to start writing longer articles for the magazine. Now, why was I writing articles for the New York Post? You know, like like Heather, I never set out to be a, a, a conservative uh, writer, but when I was in when I was going to school in New Orleans in the late 1990s, this was the time when Giuliani, as Heather says, the good Giuliani 
Giuliani was in New York City and starting to achieve the remarkable decreases in the murder rate that many people said could could never happen, that we, we would never get the, the murder numbers down until we addressed all of the root causes of, uh, of, of homicide and other violent crimes. And here was Giuliani uh, doing that and bringing the numbers down. Meanwhile, in New Orleans, when I was in school, uh, the murder rate down there was still, as it is today, uh, catastrophic. A multiple uh, number of homicides relative to the population that we've ever had in New York. Rel uh, never mind the the declines in the murder rate that we've seen since the 1990s. And the political class in New Orleans was saying what the sort of pre-Giuliani New York politicians had said for decades. You know, we can't fix murders until we address. Uh, poverty. We can't fix murders until we address education, all of which, of course, we should do. But New York was demonstrating that, no, you can control violent crime even before you solve all of the problems of society. So a marked contrast between the two cities. And, you know, also when I was in New Orleans, I was working at a retail store down there, certainly had uh uh, second person experience of people being victims to violent crime. You know, one of my colleagues at the record store down there, Kamisha Williams, a young black woman, she was murdered, shot to death, uh, uh, you know, my first year in New Orleans and the the young black men who worked at the record store almost invariably had an experience of being violently mugged trying to trying to get home from work. So just like New York, you know, violent crime has a disproportionate impact on minorities, particularly minority men, also something that was hard to avoid uh, noticing down there. So when I came back up here, I was kind of primed to uh, have a different perspective on things. Worked in financial journalism for a few years, happened to be working downtown right across from, from the World Trade Center on 9-11. Uh, after 9-11 and the aftermath, it kind of uh, started broadening my writing and saying, what can I take from this financial journalism and start applying it to the broader New York City world? You know, how should New York address its fiscal issues, its economic issues? So I started sending some articles to the Post in the months after 9-11. You know, they printed one article, so I would send them another. And that's how Stephen Myron found me by the summer of 2005. Well, before uh, we dive into more detailed discussion of some of these uh, very important issues. We, we just have a short video from another longtime City Journal contributor and a former editor of the magazine, Fred Siegel, who couldn't join us in person today. My name is Fred Siegel. I was a professor for many years at Cooper Union for Science and Art, and I got involved in the City Journal in, in the early 90s uh, through Roger Starr. Uh, uh, Roger was was a, a, a brilliant urbanist uh, who, 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 who for a time who for a time was an, an on the editorial board of the New York Times. Uh, those are obviously very different uh, very different times than the one that exists today. But then ninety three ninety four uh, was when I was the editor, and the, the highlight of that period uh, was when I when I went to the Giuliani campaign headquarters. As soon as the new issue came out, and I would bring the issue, I would get five or six copies. I wasn't very far to, 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 from City Journal uh, headquarters to uh, 
Giuliani headquarters, and I, I would walk the magazines over, and uh, I'd, I'd give them out to people who I, who I know were interested in policy. Uh, and, and this included Rudy and, and his, his good friend Peter Powers, who's passed away, um, but was a crucial player in, in, in the administration. And uh, the, 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 they, they would want to talk, the Giuliani people would want to talk about the articles and the issue. Um, the articles that, that had, had the greatest impact uh, began under Roger and continued under me, and they, they were the articles written by a combination of George Kelling, uh, who was one of the founders of Broken Windows Policing, and and Bill Bratton. And Bratton, people will not remember, was was for a time head head of uh, the Transit Police. What was important about that is he was experimenting with Broken Windows Policing. He and Kelling, they were, they were very close. So when I when I would come and bring the City Journal articles, that that was the first thing that that they wanted to look at. The way the way that that broken windows policing was a success in the subways, and the the, the articles and the issue um, provided the intellectual basis for much of the what became the Giuliani administration. City, I think City Journal's mission in, in the next few years is going to be very important. Because the the disaster of the of, of the uh, de Blasio administration has left the debris everywhere, uh, and so uh, the, the new mayor is is, is going to be faced with, with terrible terrible circumstances. The city cannot afford to operate on on, on its uh, current assumptions. We're, we're enormously in debt. The subways are, are are enormously in debt. Yes, there'll be a federal bailout under a Biden administration, but it will come no, nowhere near a, a, a papering over all, this, all these problems. We're at we're an inflection point in the city. We're, we're, we're declining at a rapid pace. The City Journal is more important than ever before uh, in, 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 in providing the, the source of counterthinking, of counterfailing ideas on, on a, a wide range of issues. And so people who are looking to... to, to Get New York to dig itself out of the hole that it's in. Are going to need to will be turning to City Journal to see how they might be able to do it. Fascinating memories from Fred, Heather. I'd like to pick up with you, um, in part reflecting on some of what Fred was just saying in that video clip. You, you've been writing a lot on how the city's remarkable accomplishments in public safety, which Fred talked about and Nicole talked about, um, are being reversed. Uh, when did you start noticing that shift? You were one of the first people to warn about it. And what do you think's behind it? Well, those were fantastic remarks from Fred. And I, I'm glad he emphasized the broken windows aspect of the Giuliani uh, Bratton policing revolution, because that's what has been first jettisoned under the de Blasio administration, even though for the first couple of years, uh, de Blasio did pay lip service to the importance of public order maintenance while William Bratton was his police commissioner. Uh, but any New Yorker for the last eight years has observed the growing tide of flotsam and jetsam on the city streets, both both physical and human, and the failure and the loss of of belief that 
urban residents have a right to expect civilized public spaces. That is not racist. It's not mean. It's not uncompassionate. It is the prerequisite. Public order is the prerequisite for all human striving. And so for years now, we've seen an increase in litter and graffiti and in aggressive panhandling and homelessness. But what really uh, has been the rapid decline began this year because of the George Floyd riots and the embrace of anti-racism as the most important public policy. Uh, crime was actually going down a little bit during the uh, first months of the coronavirus lockdowns, contrary to the received wisdom, which says that the crime increase that we've seen this year nationally, which is the largest one year percentage increase in this nation's history, uh, replicated in New York City as well. People want to blame the coronavirus angst and existential angst and economic uncertainty. That has nothing to do with it. What's going on here is massive depolicing in New York and elsewhere. Basic tools of law enforcement are being thrown out the window because they are said to have a disparate impact on Blacks. That is true, they do have a disparate impact on Blacks. Why? Because Blacks have much, much higher rates of criminal victimization and criminal offending. There is not a single law enforcement practice that you can continue if your goal is to avoid disparate impact. So what happened this year in New York and residents in other riot-torn cities went through this as well, the end of May, early June was a time of, of real fear where you had no idea how bad the riots were gonna get. Were they spreading to your building? Plywood went up on apartment buildings, on my apartment building, uh, elsewhere across the city on uh, retail establishment. Stores were looted by caravans of, of uh, professional thieves. And uh, you had the, Manhattan district attorney declaring that he was not going to prosecute curfew violations, resisting arrest, disorderly conduct. Why? You know it, the usual disparate impact on our minority communities excuse. What happened uh, then the final sort of nail in the coffin of New York's public order was the decision of the New York police commissioner, Dermot Shea to disband uh, undercover units who were tasked with getting guns off the street. Uh, they, they too were said to have a disparate impact on blacks. The crime increase in the two weeks after he disbanded those units was stunning. I'll just give you the numbers. Uh, shootings were up over 200% in the two weeks after those units were taken off the street. Uh, June was the most violent month in a quarter century. And we finished this year in New York uh, with murder up 41%, shooting victims up 100%. And in really high crime areas like Southern Brooklyn, uh, you have shooting victims up 170% and murder up 100%. So if we're going to get this city back on track, there is one thing to do, and that is to stop worrying about disparate impact, start worrying about Black victims of violent crime, and realize that government is not in the business of racial or social equity. It's in the business of providing opportunity, basic services, and treating all citizens equally.
uh, Heather, you know, to what extent do you think, uh, you, you alluded to this just now, that aggressive kind of mindset about prosecution, which we're seeing in New York and many other cities now, uh, how much of a factor is that really playing in the uh, public safety decline? Are, are, you know, hardened criminals being let out on the street to commit new crimes? Is that is that going on? As as you know, we've we've been writing about a bit. There's no question, Brian, that this wave of new left wing prosecutors who are driven again. The the only thing you need to understand about this moment is disparate impact. Everything is driven by racial disparities. That is the name of the game, whether it's in criminal justice, education, economics, banking, you name it. That is what everything is about in our world today. And you have prosecutors, whether it's Eric Gonzalez in, in Brooklyn or Cy Vance in Manhattan, or the prosecutor in, in uh, Philadelphia, Chicago, Kim Fox, here in LA, uh, George Gascon, who's an absolute nightmare. Uh, they're all saying we're not going to prosecute uh, low-level or even high-level offenses. Gascon has announced he's not uh, prosecuting resisting arrest against a police officer. That strikes at the heart of civilization. There should be no impunity for people who attack cops. Uh, and that is definitely driving things. And, you know, it, we've got to reassert those principles that Fred talked about, which is that public order matters there are now no consequences for criminal offending. And officer after officer that I've spoken to, whether in New York or Oakland or, or Chicago or Minneapolis say, gangbangers are carrying guns because they know they're not gonna get stopped, uh, whether through an anti-crime undercover unit or stopped in the course of committing low-level public order offenses. Broken windows is important in itself. Public order is important in itself but it is also one way to disrupt uh, the criminal activity of more serious criminals who also, they're not assiduous about, you know, not littering or not drinking in public uh, on their way to their next drive-by shooting. They're, they're, they're equal opportunity criminal offenders and broken windows enforcement is a good way to get to them as well. Thanks, Heather. Um, Steve, shifting to you, uh, when you were at Cranes, and you, you talked about this a bit in the opening question, you were writing extensively about the influence of public unions and government-funded nonprofits on public policy. Uh, that, you know, that remains an incredibly relevant issue for New York and other cities, for the country as a whole. How has uh, that particular issue evolved over the years, in your view? Well, you know, uh, when I was writing about it in the early 90s, and not very many people were uh, were also, uh, you know, writing about it, and I think it was almost uh, uh, impossible if you were at a daily newspaper to be pursuing these issues to any great degree. Uh, to give you an idea of how long that kind of um, lack of focus persisted, when I came to the institute in uh, 2000. And uh, the, the next election was in 2001. And one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to write more about to what extent public sector workers and, pu and public sector union members were supporting 
candidates in the election versus people in the private sector. There was no exit poll in New York City at the time which asked that question, are you a member of a public sector union? They, they were uninterested. The media was uninterested and the pollsters who were sexually asking questions reflecting that were uninterested. We actually, Myron Magnet and I, and we got Larry Moan, uh, with Larry Moan, who was the uh, the uh, president of uh, MI at the time, we got together and we decided to pay to get that question asked in exit polls. To me, the answer that came out in the 2001 elections was all about the the uh, how that election was won. Michael Bloomberg, as someone who had never run for office before, but was a uh, was a, a CEO in New York City won the private sector vote in New York City by 15 percentage points. <clears throat> Mark Green, the Democratic candidate, won the public sector union vote in New York by 17 percentage points. There were stark differences between the way people in the private sector were voting and the way government employees were voting. They were voting for bigger government. And um, that was, uh, I think, you know, that we, we actually put that those results out. And uh, John Tierney, who now writes for, for City Journal, was a columnist at the Times, uh, at the time, in, in the New York Times, and he wrote about that. And um, when I then got here, the way that this whole issue evolved is that I started seeing, as I was looking around the country, because I, I had the, uh, I, you know, my purview was just not just New York City, the same kind of issues regarding uh, battles over public sector unions, political batters, starting to emerge in other places. New York had kind of led the way, and remember Robert Wagner in the 1950s as mayor of New York, had signed one of the first orders allowing collective bargaining in the public sector. So New York had led the way for years, but but quickly and massively it, that these same issues arose in Chicago, Los Angeles, um, and I've written many stories since then uh, the, the, the Beholden State, for instance, was a city journal essay about the rise of public sector union power in California and how they had influenced California. And since then, we've also seen many other people writing about it. And there have been tremendous court cases, uh, it, the Supreme Court cases, uh, uh, essentially about the issue of public sector power, public sector union power. So the, the, the thing is that that this this topic has exploded and it's become a national topic and um, far from exhausting, <laughs> you know, uh, my my coverage of it. It's, uh, you know, it's just continued to evolve in, in ever fascinating ways. So I could have never anticipated when I moved here that it would become this this national issue. Uh, but it's certainly given me quite a bit to write about. Uh, what what types of reforms, Steve, to union structures would improve conditions for workers in New York and, and in other cities and for taxpayers? How do we sort of get on top of some of these these problems? Well, you know, first of all, in New York City and in many places where there are, I guess you would call it, where there's a union-friendly political environment, there are lots of laws that essentially enable public sector unionization and make it very difficult to uh, negotiate with them. New York State in particular has laws which essentially say, and, and Michael Bloomberg, when he was mayor, faced this, they essentially say that if a union contract runs out in the public sector in New York, then the union can continue to receive all of the benefits that they're currently receiving 
even after the contract expires, as you're negotiating a new contract. Now, one of the things that that does is that provides a disincentive for unions to ever settle or to make concessions. That's one of the reasons it's so hard, even for someone like Bloomberg, when uh, he, during his last term especially, wanted to uh, re uh, essentially um, get givebacks and save money on things like healthcare costs. It's so difficult to do that because there's a law in New York state which enables that you know that what we've seen since then is if anything new york is becoming even more union friendly after those supreme court rulings which essentially said that a public sector union can no longer require uh workers government workers who don't want to be part of a union to pay them uh, fees uh, after that law uh new york state has passed a number of different rules uh, and laws which essentially make it hard for people who are in unions but now have the opportunity to leave, to leave the unions. And um, this is just, there's no other reason for these laws except essentially to bolster the movement rather than essentially giving people free choice. So there are a whole bunch of reforms. We could spend way too much time and in going into too much detail, but, but clearly there are very, very union friendly public sector union-friendly laws in a place like New York City and New York State. And you'd have to start by essentially gutting them and going back and, you know, looking at what the rest of the country does. Um, uh, and there are places around the country which simply, you know, make it more of an even playing field. Right now, it's not an even playing field between the unions and the people negotiating on the other side for the taxpayers. Cole, uh, turning to you, uh, you didn't mention this in my opening question, your response to it, um, but you've really established yourself as probably the number one expert in the city on transportation and the subways. Uh, what's your take on the future of the New York City subway, which is obviously in uh, deep trouble right now because of the pandemic, uh, and for public transportation generally in the city? How are you seeing things uh, uh, develop over the, you know, the years ahead? Yeah, Brian. In fact, the very first article that I wrote for City Journal was was called How to Save the Subways. And again, that was 16 years ago. And so what was the, the point of that article was that the costs of operating the subways and the buses on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as the costs of making any kind of capital investment in new infrastructure. So if you want to complete the Second Avenue subway, for example, if you want to modernize the subway signals so that you can run more trains more quickly together, the cost of these things is far out of line with any, any kind of cost metric in Europe, in Japan, and in, in the rest of developed Asia. So New York gets much less per dollar of what it spends on, on tra transit service than any of the other developed global cities in the world with which we are competing was a problem 16 years ago, was an even bigger problem on the eve of the pandemic. And the, the other side of that is that New York can't live without its subways and buses. And we've actually seen that uh, in a experiment that I think that, that no one ever could have uh, foreseen over the past year. And that if you think about New York's economy in February of 2020, before the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic began to spread in New York City, 
uh, if you think about Midtown Manhattan, four million people every day came into Manhattan below 60th Street to work, to shop, to go to doctor's appointments. And then at the end of the day, those four million people left the island of Manhattan. There's no way to bring people back and forth to Manhattan without mass transit. Three out of every four people before the pandemic came into Manhattan on mass transit, whether it was New Jersey Transit bus, New York City subway, uh, New York City bus, Metro North Railroad, Long Island Railroad. It, we cannot rebuild New York's economy and the white collar workforce in Manhattan below 60th Street unless we figure out a way to get all of these people back onto mass transit. Right now, you know, I'm in Midtown Manhattan. You can see behind me. I don't think the foot traffic is has improved uh any since last summer. I mean, we had some improvement between April and July of 2020 as the official lockdowns eased, but very little improvement since then. And actually some slide back over the past few weeks since they've taken away the Christmas tree and some of the other things that a few tourists at least wanted to come and see. So right now, I mean, only 15 or so percent of office workers are back working in their offices. The transit system is barely doing 30% of pre-pandemic ridership on Metro North and Long Island Railroad. It's even lower, you know, fewer than a quarter of people regularly taking these commutes. And so until we figure out how to solve that problem, both making people feel safe on transit in terms of the disease spread and making people feel like they want and need to be back in Manhattan because now they've proven that they can work from home for nearly a year. They may not like it. They may not be as productive in the long term, but they can do it. They've shown that, that, that they can do this at home, which is a huge change in the 60 year, uh, uh, economic development strategy for New York City, which was to be a white, uh, a hub of white collar workers. Uh, the, the employees and their employers when it comes to taxes, quality life, everything else going on in New York City, they now have the advantage over New York City and over New York State in that they can say, if we don't like the way you're doing things, we do not have to be in Manhattan. We have shown that we don't have to be there. So are people going to put up with these uh, delays and overcrowdings in, in commutes? And are they going to put up with the quality of life conditions surrounding Penn Station, the Port Authority, 34th Street? Uh, most likely not. So it's kind of counterintuitive that at a time when New York has fewer fiscal resources, not as much political will in terms of assuring public safety and fewer transit resources, they actually all have to do a better job than they did before the pandemic in delivering these services, or we won't get people back to Midtown Manhattan. Thanks, Nicole. Uh, here's a question. I'll start with you, Nicole, uh, from Tim, who is watching. Um, he mentions that I noted that City Journal's founding was designed to fill a media gap caused by the mainstream press's ideological unanimity. Do the panelists think that that gap is wider even more today or, or has it closed? So starting with you, Nicole. I think what's different today is that 
everyone in everyone in the mainstream uh, mainstream media or anyone who aspires to be in the mainstream media whether it's working at the New York Times uh, you know one of the the broadcast networks one of the uh, major radio stations it, people know from an early age everything they ever say or write will be recorded forever. So not only can you not make a mistake, I mean, we've all said and written things we wish we hadn't said or written, that's fine, that's life. You're not gonna uh, go through this business for decades on, on end and not have that happen. But also things taken out of context, uh, it, it, these these things will be held against you. And so when it comes to have, your, have you moved your way up to be considered for a position in the mainstream media, Again, uh, these things will be held against you, and so you won't get that job. And even, you know, we, we even notice this with talking to sources, sort of regular people on the street, whereas, you know, 20 years ago, you could say, do you want to be quoted in my article about being concerned about quality of life around the Port Authority? And if so, what's your name? And people, they, they don't want to talk to you now because people say, if I say something about this, any potential employer will Google me and here I am, you know, Bob Smith saying, well, I'm worried about homelessness and drug abuse around the Port Authority. So that makes must make this person a bad person who doesn't have sympathy for his fellow man, doesn't care about addiction, doesn't care about poverty. So why would we want to hire this person? So I think that's, you know, they, uh, Steve and Heather may have more to say about is the ideological gap in starting out with what people actually think wider Maybe, maybe not, but certainly with what people are willing to say, much, much different than it was 20 years ago. Steve, what's your take on that? So I think actually that um, the proof of the, uh, the uh, uh, if you will, the, um, the ideological unanimity is in the growth, the incredible growth of City Journal, which we haven't talked about so much on this. We've, we're talking really about the issues we follow. But way back when I was at Cranes and I was writing a column, it was still there. The media had clear sympathies. I would frequently get letters from people in the business community saying, did you see what this paper wrote about the economy, or did you see what this paper wrote about the restaurant business or about small businesses? Could you please correct that? And I early on made the decision that I wasn't gonna make my column into a media criticism column, although I did write my share of columns about that. And I, I have quite a lot of stories that, that are pretty involved about you know the difference between what the media was reporting and what was actually going on, even back then. However, when I came to City Journal, we were a, a, a journal, and we had a modest, modest website. Since then, City Journal has exploded. You have the numbers of our of our readership per year, uh, the most recent numbers, and I think you maybe should just give them because clearly what has happened is where we were at one point, way back in the days of Chuck Bruni and Milton Friedman, where we were essentially a journal that was there to put our ideas on paper so that people who were interested could read them. We have really become uh, 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 mainstream ourselves in, in our numbers. And it's, it's because we say things that even the, even the opinion pages of the, of the newspapers 30 years ago used to occasionally say, but don't say anymore. And I, I think the, the real proof is in the, you know, we know these numbers, this, the unbelievable 
growth of the City Journal website as a source of information for people. Yeah, it's, it's very true. We're reaching millions and millions of readers now directly in a way that would not have been possible um, even, you know, 20 years ago and certainly not uh, when the magazine was founded. Uh, what, what's your take on this, Heather? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're experiencing some of what Nicole referred to with sources being unwilling to go on the record. And, um, yeah, know, I mean... Right. The fear of being called a racist today is absolutely crippling and silencing, and it's killing off civilized life. I would say in the early 90s, again, like I didn't I didn't come out of a conservative background, so I wasn't aware that a thing like National Review or commentary existed. Uh, since then, because of the web, we have a whole lot more conservative outlets than before. Uh, so that's a very good thing. But I'm a pessimist by nature, I have to admit. So everything I say, take that into account. Uh, I would say the ideological divide is greater. The New York Times has been left liberal for decades and decades. I, I wrote a piece early on documenting that transition of the liberal elites into left-wingery by looking at uh, the evolution of the Christmas charity drive, the hundred neediest cases, and and the New York Times went from a a publication that believed in the distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor at, at the turn of the twentieth century, and uh, the the principle of reciprocity that I mentioned earlier with Giuliani that that the poor should help themselves and participate in the civic contract uh, to the Times then becoming just an apologist for welfare dependency, for intergenerational poverty, illegitimacy. But now, uh, because of the insanity that has taken over uh, the entirety of the elite establishment during the Trump era, you see purported media, you know, news reports on the front page of the New York Times using uh, qualitative language that is just astounding, editorializing every sentence about Trump's uh, lies and exaggerations, not bothering with alleged or anything. Now, they believe that they're simply making statements of fact. Uh, but I think a little bit of epistemological humility would suggest trying to be as neutral as possible. But it's And it's not just the New York Times, it's the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, all of the mainstream outlets, I think, have moved much further left. Now, they would say, yeah, but what about Breitbart? And, well, you guys have moved right, too. You know, so everything that we say, they will, they will say symmetrically. Um, but let's face it, they have the power. And um, I don't know. I, there seems to be less and less that both sides of the ideological divide even agree upon at this point. I, I, I ask myself in despair where is the point of of unity before our, our, our worldviews branch off? And if we can't even agree that there are such things as biological males and females, that seems like a pretty basic fact. Uh, I don't know how we're going to come together, but each side is just, I guess, going to have to prosecute its, um, its belief in the truth and, and hope that conservative outlets are not shut down uh, you know that's that's the real concern of our time right now in five years uh we may be a very very different country because the left has seized upon this idiotic riot in 
on Capitol Hill on, on uh, January 6th as the long-awaited pretext to really shut down conservative dissent. And it's a very, very concerning thing. Uh, here is a question also, uh, this one's directed to you, Heather, uh, regarding the success Joseph asks with the great decrease in crime, which we've talked about, how do conservatives respond to those who say, yes, but that was accomplished via mass incarceration, uh, abuses of stop and frisk, uh, how can you rebut that argument? Well, mass incarceration is a fantasy term. I don't know what qualifies as mass. The fact problem in this country is not policing. It's not crime. It's not. It's not. Excuse me. It's not incarceration. We have a crime problem. Our crime rates are are magnitudes higher than Europe. Often you hear these ridiculous comparisons of our per capita incarceration rate compared to Germany. Say. Well, if you look at the age group of, of young males, uh, their rate of committing gun homicide is about 43 times higher than the rest of the developed world. Uh, so the crime decrease began and was pushed along by two parallel movements, the increase in proactive policing, the attention to uh, public order, but also a greater determinacy in sentencing uh, and and a willingness to hold repeat criminals in prison. Uh, and then the mere fact of incapacitation does work. The real, when people talk about mass incarceration, what they're talking about is really not the sheer numbers. But again, this is all about race. I'm just going to repeat myself. Everything in our world today is about race. If, if we did not have uh, racial disparities in, in incarceration, nobody would be talking about this. The blacks are about 12% of the nation's population. They're about a third of the nation's prisoners. So there's a disparity there. Is that racism? Well, here's the truth. Uh, in the 75 largest counties in the US, blacks are 15% of the population in those 75 largest counties. They commit about 60% of all murders and robberies. So if you want to get the prison numbers down, here's how you do it. Re-knit the black family, make sure that kids are getting socialized at home, uh, that there are high demands on them in schools. You've got to somehow break the acting white stigma that, that tells black kids that they're, they're sellouts if they study in school and take their textbooks home. But frankly, again, uh, we talk about policing, we talk about incarceration in order not to talk about a far more difficult and uncomfortable truth, which is black crime. Uh, here is a question uh, from Jeremy and uh, directed at Nicole. Uh, does anyone running for mayor of New York City offer, and this can be to all of, all of you, offer anything resembling a reasonable position on crime, transit, uh, COVID regulations, um, on and on. Who, who is the, in your view, the, uh, the best hope uh, to bring the city out of the Bill de Blasio era into a kind of post-pandemic uh, uh, flourishing? Thank you, Jeremy. And I think the good news about the mayoral race and the Democratic primary is now less than five months away. The last uh, 
last week in June, and that's a change for New York and that people are used to voting in September and again in November, but most likely the mayoral race will be decided in the Democratic primary in June. Will enough people be paying attention to, uh, you know, as Steve said, to make sure that it's not only public sector workers who are deciding this vote? That's something we don't know yet. But the good news for people who are paying attention, like yourself, is that there is a real choice. Whatever New Yorkers want to see in their next mayor, someone is offering it across the ideological spectrum, across a dozen candidates. If you were going to put the candidates into three separate buckets, you have candidates who are running on the fact that they have been politicians for decades and they want to continue to be politicians. That would be people like Scott Stringer, the city controller, Eric Adams, the uh, Brooklyn Borough president. They're not, uh, they're not so much uh, new, new, new left ideological as they can see the way that the organized voting blocks have changed and moved further to the left over the past few years. And so they are changing along with that in order to hopefully win the election. So that's one bucket of people. You have another bucket of people, people like uh, Maya Wiley, who used to advise uh, Mayor de Blasio on, on criminal justice, who are, they're not lifelong politicians, but they are sort of more lifelong ideological thinkers in that unlike Stringer and Eric Adams, they genuinely believe in things like defund the police. We can do policing with with social work. And so that's your second group of people. There's, you know, half a dozen candidates along those lines. And then your third group is people who are running on real managerial experience, whether in the private sector or the public sector, and they understand from living in the real world that ideologically, if, if you're going to successfully govern New York City, uh, ideology is not going to govern how you govern the city. So people, and these are the people, you know, without obviously endorsing or not endorsing anyone, I think these are the people that voters should be taking a close look at. And sometimes they don't get a lot of attention because they are, you know, being able to competently manage something is boring. So they don't have the easy sound bites. But someone like Catherine Garcia, for example, the former uh, sanitation commissioner for the city of New York, long time not a political person, but a commissioner, very different to advise the mayor on criminal justice versus to run a major agency that every single day, every everybody wakes up in the morning and says, was my garbage picked up or not? I mean, this is an immediate marker of success or failure. So knows how to already essentially manage a large government organization. And someone like Lori Sutton, a former uh, army general, got a... a, a uh, uh, a bronze star for com combat in the first Gulf War, managed a large group of people in the public sector, and also has a no-nonsense attitude when it comes to saying things like, yes, we do need police officers, including police officers to respond to incidents of violent mental illness or incidents of violent domestic disputes, that we cannot solve these problems 
through uh, replacing police work with with civilians. So certainly there's a gamut of candidates to look for. Of course, that does not guarantee that we, and I forgot to say, people in the private sector uh, business uh, community, people like Ray McGuire, former head of investment banking at Citibank or Citigroup may not know as much about the day-to-day workings of city government, like someone like Catherine Garcia understands, but understands that yes, we do need to have a business community in New York City and the business community has a choice about where to locate so a wide range of candidates, including some that you would really be uh, going in a completely different direction in terms of an experiment in how to govern New York, some who would uh, probably be fairly close to the Ed Koch, uh, Mike Bloomberg way of, of governing, but you know, having a lot of candidates, that does not tell you who is going to vote. And as Steve said, makes a big difference on our people paying attention. What does turnout look like? Is this an election that is decided by public sector workers? Or is it an election decided by people who are worried about increase in shootings in the South Bronx because they have to live in the South Bronx. They're worried about their kids getting shot on, on their way to work. Uh, middle, middle class people in South Brooklyn worried about uh, what, what happens to our property values if people don't want to move to New York City anymore. Who decides the election is who comes out in, in, in votes. And so we'll, uh, we'll uh, a lot of uh, untested uh, uh, theory there in terms of what the June election actually looks like. All right, we, we have time for maybe two more questions, and here's a, a fun one. Uh, this is from uh, Jack Fowler of National Review, who's apparently watching. He says he's curious about what the panelists would say are their favorite for any reason, either the consequences or just the great pros. Uh, what are their favorite article, article or articles that they've ever written for the magazine? So I'll start with you, Heather. Oh. That I've ever written. I was. I saw that comment. I was thinking about other people. I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> one was on uh, the the script, the bourgeois marriage script. I think that's been a very profound concept. Well, uh, for me, I guess I I would repeat one that I mentioned earlier. My piece on the 100 neediest cases, not because of anything I contributed to that, but just going through the archives at the New York Public Library and reading all the microfiches, and just seeing this. <clears throat> in both the rhetoric, you know, the times back in the early 20th century, it was a, a different writing style. You know, it was not the objective professionalism. It was much more purple prose and highly melodramatic, charming in a way, at least because it was on our side. You know, now I guess one would, maybe in another hundred years, they'll be reading the New York Times and saying, God, they were like going nuts uh, with emotional rhetoric about systemic racism, you know, white supremacy. But, um, but the, to see the decade-by-decade decade change uh, in the, the worldview of the elites uh, was, was really something. And, and I think is just a, um, a nice concrete way to do I haven't I haven't done those sorts of um, deep dives into journalistic history in a while, but it's, it's always worth doing and um, fun to see the advertising changes. I guess off the top of my head, um, I think, you know, the, the biggest love in my life is classical music. And so I keep coming back to an article I wrote about the travesty of opera productions in Europe that's coming here uh, of, of revisionist 
directions that is destroying the beauty and grace and, and irony and wit of Mozart in favor of narcissistic left-wing uh, preening, something that is gonna get much worse in the post-George Floyd era. All right, Steve, how about you? It doesn't have to be by you. It can be by somebody else. No, well, right. I, was, I was, no, I think, so I think the first thing I would say, Jack, is I suppose I should say that my favorite article is the cover story I wrote for a national review, but maybe that's not. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, or I, I always like to think that my favorite story is going to be the one that I'm writing on, working on right now. But I would have to say that, for instance, my stories on uh, the impact of the public sector unions uh, uh, on, let's say, California, the beholden state, uh, and pension stories also the 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 um, uh, the uh, uh, the pension fund that ate California, uh, or the mob that whacked New Jersey. Those are some of my uh, my favorite stories because when you get in, it's it's really extraordinary. You think when you tackle stories like this, you think, how much am I going to find? Am I being, am I going to really be able to make an entire city journal essay out of this? And then when you look at some of these places, they're so. I'll use the word corrupt, <laughs> that you can't possibly fit it all in. And you actually have to, um, uh, the narrative, you have to shape the narrative. You spend more time cutting stuff out, if you will, and shaping the narrative. So I think those would be some of my uh, my favorite stories. And Nicole, how about you? Yeah, I guess one of my favorite articles would be one that I co-wrote with, with Fred, uh, I guess going on uh, a long time ago now in the first year of the de Blasio administration, just taking advantage of Fred's historical knowledge of the fiscal crisis and the political crisis in, in the mid-1970s with my understanding of the current budget situation that New York City was facing and just saying, yes, if we don't take advantage of the good times in the first year of the de Blasio administration to start to look at long-term reforms of the city budget, yes, we could go right back to the 1970s. And I know everyone makes fun of you when you say we're going back to the 70s, that that will never happen, that it's a very different city. Of course, we're not going exactly back to the 1970s, but if if we, we certainly have learned over the past year what a real dislocation, both uh, economic dislocation, psychological dislocation, physical dislocation in terms of people leaving the city in many cases if they have the resources to, to do that. I mean, we've seen kind of a compression of what took 15 years to happen between 1965 and 1980, essentially being packed into just the space of a few months and the same arguments on both sides coming up into what's happening or what's not happening. So I think there is a lot we can learn from people who understand this history. Thanks, Nicole. Well, we're, we're out of time. I wanna thank you all for joining us uh, to celebrate uh, City Journal at 30. We'll be doing more of these uh, event casts. It's been a pleasure revisiting uh, the past three decades with you and looking forward. Um, and as we do look ahead to the future, New York of New York, of our nation, uh, we're facing formidable challenges from a fraying social fabric, struggling small businesses to rioting, a pandemic, looming fiscal crises. There's a lot of problems and misguided policymakers are making many of those problems worse. So during this difficult period in our nation's history, City Journal is committed to analyzing the issues of the day with precision, responsibility, clarity, uh, and in a special forthcoming issue, compiling the best of our New York uh, articles over the last year, 
called New York City Reborn, uh, we'll offer a close look at the policies and ideas that can help the city address these uh, remarkable challenges it's currently facing. Now, our suggestions won't always align with popular thinking, but we think there's a value in bringing original voices to the table, especially uh, during this period. So if you think so too, please help us by sharing City Journal with your family and friends. Uh, as we discussed earlier, we've, we've now got millions of online readers, but we wanna keep growing that audience. Um, you know, as that audience continues to grow, we're grateful for the opportunity to be a voice for American cities, for New York City, and their importance for our nation's future. So thank you very much again to the panelists and thank you all for watching.